2009. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neurobiology Podcast. Our guest today is Bernd Frisch, who's the Iowa Entrepreneurial Professor and Chair of Biology at the University of Iowa, where he works on the molecular basis and evolution of ear development. Around the room, we have Charlie Wilson. Hi. Carlos Palladini. Hello. Todd Troyer. Hello. Gary Gaffo. Hello. And me, I'm your host, Selma Karashi. I want to start with, um, so you work on patterning, uh, and patterning of the nervous system is such an intricately orchestrated set of processes. It's often talked about using words that I don't fully understand, um, like induction and cell fate and lineage specification. Um, I think I understand them, but I don't, I know that I don't completely. But at core to me, it's about how cells become what they are, migrate to and send processes to where they belong, and ultimately link up with other cells to form circuits, to functional circuits. So we're going to talk about how that happens, hopefully. But first, I, I'd love to get your perspective on what questions developmental biologists started with in you know, your, your view, and how these have changed since um, the double helix in the 50s, and then later through the major technical breakthroughs of the 80s and 90s. Very good questions. So I think my confrontation with developmental biology started out very early on, and I read uh, the con uh, conflicting data of Driesch and Spielmann. So let's go back to this very early experiment. One was an experiment where he took a newt at a two-cell stage, that was a triche, and fried one of the two uh, cells. And then showed that uh, the uh, newt uh, development is absolutely predetermined because only a half newt developed. The other one was a dead embryo. Only, I think, 15 or so years later, I don't know exactly the time anymore, Spayman did his famous experiment where he essentially took a teeny little hair and cut the two uh, eggs into two halves. So he had now two individual eggs, and each one developed into a full newt, which is essentially the prototypical complete regulation of uh, uh, development. But the learning curve couldn't be any steeper. And the one absolute predetermination on the same animal in which you can show with a different kind of experiment, complete regulation. And that is still the confrontation we're having in development. Because as, whenever you set a, a developmental perturbation, you're facing exactly that issue. How much of a regulation is out there, and how much of it is predetermined and cannot be regulated anymore. Now, I will jump forward in what we now understand in terms of genetic expression and expression regulation. So we have the entire sequences in many genes very nicely down. What we do not have down is the regulatory interactions, and in particular, how most of the promoter regions can be regulated. So in a way, we are doing right now with our knockouts, with our knock-ins, with our misexpressors, experiments that are replicas of what has happened then between Triche and Spayman. And sure enough, you end up interpretation differences, because people look at it and say, I knock out that gene, for that reason this entire thing is gone and everything else follows with it. But what you have really done is, you deprive, if you are lucky, a cascade of a certain essential node, and that entire gene cascade cannot substitute for it. If you're unlucky, you're on the periphery of something that has a percolation down through many cascades that eventually causes an effect, and you really get an effect that is only distantly related to the real action of your gene. So how do you, how do you deal with that in the field? Uh, I think what the field is doing... Uh, just go back again historically, then you can see how we are progressing. I think the best example is if you look at the discovery of homeobox genes. So you find the first one, then you go in and you look at sequence similarities, you find the next one. You look at where it is, what it's affecting, eventually you have them all. Because you know there's nothing else anymore that has similar sequences. Right? Then you can go and take a rational point of view again and see, okay, now we have them all, now let's see how we can organize them. That happened then after they were all discovered with a very clear uh, understanding that each one have a specific expression in a rostrocaudal expression domain and each one is belonging to a specific subgroup, A, B, C, D. So we now can come with a better uh, nomenclature for it that has within the group identity and the expression identity because we now know where they are. Ultimately, as we move forward, all of our acronyms of, of, uh, for genes will likely be re replaced with better words that is describing where they are 
in terms of their functionality and how they're interacting in a given cascade. So look at all of development is essentially modular. So you cannot, a single gene cannot do what the other genes can't allow. You have to have your function embedded in the function of a number of other genes that help you to accomplish that. And that, in most cases, what we call the context, is the most difficult to define. So, what is it we have about almost 2,000 transcription factors? None of them can really do anything all by itself. If you would strip off every other gene expression, just activate the transcription factor, that's it. Nothing will happen. What happens is only because the context allows you to do certain things. And figuring out the context will be the next major step we have to do in order to understand the embedding of a given signaling of a given transcription factor into a, towards a given function. So what I did today, I talked about one transcription factor, atonal homolog 1. Let me give you a little bit of background on that transcription factor, which you see what I mean with contextuality. <coughs> so atonal 1 it has about 48% sequence similarity to the insect homologue, which is called atonal, hence the name. So the name atonal in insect tells you exactly what it's doing. You will be deaf when atonal is knocked out. 801 knockout causes the same thing, you will be deaf. Alright? But that's not all. We can now do genetical engineering. We can take the 801 gene and stick it in the fruit fly and replace the native gene with 801. And your fruit fly will be normal. That's fine. But then 801 has acquired functionality that is not part of atonal. Like, for example, regulating differentiation of your gut cells. It's not doing that in insects. The gut of an insect is very different from our guts. And yet, if you take atonal and stick it in the 801 locus, all of the function of 801 is done by atonal. With a 46% or 48%, I don't know exactly how much it was anymore, sequence similarity. How can it do that? Because the environment allows it to function along the same line. Okay? So here's one experiment we did to test for that environment. It was a very simple idea, we thought, a glorious idea. We are now five years later and we have nothing to show for. Why did that experiment not work? We took a neurogenin one, which we now know is upstream to 801, and simply said, okay, let's take neurogenin one and knock it into the 801 locus. And then see what neurogenin 1 is doing if it's expressed in differentiating hair cells instead of 801. So the hope was we get essentially hair cells differentiating as neurons. Remember the difference in our hair cells is they have no axon as compared to insects where the internal sensory cells have an axon going into the CNS. What we got was nothing. We basically made a very complicated 801 null mutation. Why? Most likely because all the downstream genes that can be activated by neurogenin 1 already shut down. They cannot be accessed anymore. And therefore neurogenin 1 can't do anything. It is expressed. We can show it. We see it in those undifferentiated hair cells as an in situ. But nothing happens. But do you think when you say uh, environment, you're, you're talking about the uh, internal yes. milieu of the cell? Yes, the internal milieu of the cell. So you're putting neurogenin and atonal, they're, they're within the same family, but there's some differences in sequences. Clear so difference. when you talk about environment, you're sticking neurogenin 1 in there, um, and uh, atonal, which is normally expressed, has all, the, uh, all its buddies it can talk with. Exactly. But neurogenin 1 uh, can't communicate the same language as atonal, so it doesn't uh, uh, bind to the right partners that do the same. So what made you do, what made you, why did you not get neurogenin 1 knowing that there's so much, there's some sequence uh, differences that may result in partnering with other uh, proteins in the environment? Because of the similarity we had with the transgenic uh, knock-in of atonal from insect into uh, the mammalian system. That worked perfectly well. The sequence similarity between neurogenin 1 and 801 is within the same range. 
So the major difference between uh, in the evolution of the uh, vertebrate curing system was actually segregating neuronal differentiation from a hazard differentiation. So you have instead of a single entity, you have now two entities. So what we try to do literally, if we push the one back into the first one, at least in the heterozygote where we have one locus eta one and the other one expressing neurogenin one, we expect that we are converting them to a more neuronal type of differentiation. That was our hope. The heterozygote was just that. A heterozygote that was completely normal in the hazards. And the null was a simple eta one null because the signaling capacity of neurogenin one under the circumstances is not able to access any one of its um, uh, target genes anymore because they're already shut down. And that is again one of those issues at which point in time can you revert course. Think about how long it took us to get from somatic cells back into clones and how it was initially done. You took your somatic cell, you studied in the skin of a frog embryo, then from the frog embryo you went back into the oocyte and then you had reprogrammed that part. So think about this programming as a, a unilateral dimension. As you go forward in development, you shut down certain genes and their accessibility in, that are necessary for early stages, but in later stages, they simply are not accessible anymore. We now know this is the case for this system. So what we can do now, that's the next step, making a neurogenic one overexpressor, which you can express temporarily earlier and earlier until we finally hit the time when those hazard precursors are still responding to it. In principle, it should be possible, which is we are a little bit too late in the day. So does that, does that mean that there's kind of, uh, well, maybe different strategies depending on how critical specific genes are? Because in some ways, if you have a specific gene that's really critical and you, and you move it or you change that, it, could, it disrupts the entire thing and you get nothing later, mm -hmm. right? But there's other things that presumably that are play a more peripheral role that if you change them or get rid of them, they actually change what happens, but not nothing. So you can look at patterns of, of, of changes, um, changes in the environment that affect other genes that affect things. And so you get kind of different kinds of uh, information depending on how critical a gene is in in some particular function, right? So is it, so do you look for the ones that are really critical or is that you actually get less information from them because you have to, because if you screw with them then you basically get yes or no. If you look at genes, uh, then you, are, you have to think in, in simplistic terms, there are only three parts you can regulate in a gene. Time of expression, place of expression, and intensity of expression. That's all you are doing, okay? So now the next part is importance of a gene. Typically, if you are a really very important transcription factor and you knock that gene out so it's nowhere to be seen, you end up with early lethality. Unless you have a transcription factor that is only necessary for very specific organ development. But if you have a globally important system, that is it. So then you have to resort to uh, different strategies like the Greelock's P strategy to do targeted now. But even then, what you're really testing only is in your terminology, coming from auditory nucleus, uh, the auditory system function, you take out one entire nucleus entirely and then see the rest of the system, what can it still do? Of course, it can't do anything anymore because that is a critical stepping stone to move forward. In my analogy, I typically use is we try to use the knockout strategy to analyze how you walk. And what we do is we're cutting off a leg. Of course, you can't walk anymore, right? But that is not an analysis of how you are, what, what, how the walking really uh, works. We only show it is a necessary component for the walking. That's what we are doing right now with the knockout strategy. With the targeted knockout strategy, we are still in the same component. Where things get really interesting is when you do misexpressions. So misexpression is now, as I said before, you have time, place, and intensity. So you can do any one of those. You can do the same gene at the same place, but more, at the same time, but more of it. That is now possible. So you can ask the question, more of the same thing, what will it do? Right? So in this case, we can ask, for example, if you have in the organ of core T only this certain set of cells that are uh, normally upregulating A to 1, what will happen if you now use, say, 
a gene that is ubiquitously expressed throughout the entire ear and drive A to 1 expression everywhere. Can every cell within the entire ear respond to A to 1 by differentiating into hair cell? In other words, is hair cell uh, differentiation the execution of A to 1? And who is then making the decision? Is it only because A to 1 is upregulated there? Or is it only because A to 1 could be upregulated everywhere, but it couldn't do it anyway? Because you have to have a certain subset of genes that are co-expressed for A to 1 to function. That is my take. And I think that's where the neurogen one helps us quite a bit, because we have to look at this and say, in our transgenics, we cannot do ubiquitous change in fate. Fate is literally already casted in a certain way with the contextuality, and you need to have the executioner to go along that line. So in my reading, A to 1 is the executioner, it's not the judge. Okay? So that can be tested with a simple overexpression as a ubiquitous overexpression everywhere. So you change a place and you change intensity. The time change would be yet another story. And I think we did this one with the uh, going too late. Now we do we have to do the second one going too early. So we need to take the A to 1 and express it under neurogenic 1 promoter and then see whether those early precursors, some of which become hair cells, can acquire a hair cell fate much early on. In other words, they are hold back to become hair cells because neurogenic 1 is the dominant uh, player at that point in time and holds the other one in check. And it's doing so by using neuro D1 to press down A to 1 expression. That's really the, the idea we are working on. So we're getting at these cascades. But it's not going in a straightforward design way. Because we are stumbling over those things as we analyze mutants and figure out effects which we never thought of before are possible. So we have to bestow now different functionality on those genes which we didn't have before. Overexpression is uh, it's hard to interpret, right? Because you can saturate binding sites, you can overexpress uh, a particular gene and shut off systems, right? And that's an artificial. Um, Situation, so you really it's really hard to understand or interpret overexpression, just like it's hard to interpret knockout because of the cascade effects that it can have. So, how do you what way how do you know to regulate overexpression? When do you know you've overdone it, you've saturated the system? When do you know that you've actually inhibited uh, a system? It's an excellent question. So let's translate into something um, that might be easy to understand. So if you look at cell cycle regulation, you can strip all the entire molecular cascade of cell cycle regulation to two components down, retinoblastoma and the E2Fs. In the end, your retinoblastoma, as long as it's binding to E2F, will block future uh, 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 cell cycle entry. As soon as retinoblastoma is, for whatever reason, off your E2F, you go on and regulate it. So now you look at it. The normal regulation of your cell cycle is you phosphorylate your retinoblastoma and thereby move it off from your E2F, freeing that to do its job. You can do two more things. You can knock down RB, either entirely, then you have a blastoma that is a cancerous growth, or you can overexpress your E2F. However you get out of the complete match of it, you will go back into the cell side, right? And that's essentially what you are coming from. If you think it back into the BHLH genes, we know we have binding partners. You cannot, as a BHLH gene, signal in itself. You have to have a binding partner, which are your E-proteins. The E-proteins have three more binding partners other than the BHLH genes. They can bind with the HESIS. They can bind with the inhibitors of differentiation. So you look at a stoichiometric balance. Inhibitor of differentiation have a feedback to your retinoblastoma. They are binding on retinoblastoma, but if they all bound on the um, uh, E-proteins, they cannot do that part. So you need to get your E-proteins out to get your IDs to the retinoblastoma, pulling that out, and then you can do something with it. It's stoichiometry. Now we're getting to the, the stoichiometry. Ultimately, what you want to have is a dimmer. Where you can regulate it up and you can get it down. We don't have that yet. We have only switches. We can turn it and the gene on at a different time, at a different place, or we can turn it off at a different time. But we can't do the dimmer part. 
So we are working on that part. Using the bacterial um, promoter region that is binding to uh, neomycin, as a, a, a variation of a neomycin, has, has a dose-dependent effect of activation of downstream genes. If you don't have that treatment with neomycin, you go back to your ground state. And do you think uh, a natural dimmer is the uh, um, RNA isis? I know that you were quoting a little bit of that. Actually, I think RNA, I, uh, the uh, microRNAs, um, the endogenous expressed microRNAs, actually helping for the transition from uh, between different states. And they are changing the contextuality with which, in which genes are signaling, but taking out transcription factors or other factors that are uh, necessary in a certain state that uh, would inhibit, inhibit differentiation or functionality in another state. So the way I'm looking at it, how we channel as we go through uh, development is we have to do three things at the same time as we move forward. We shut down genes we don't need anymore by um, modifying probably histones and putting them out from euchromatine to hydrochromatine. We are shutting down already transcribed uh, genes by using microRNA to fastly get, getting very fast transition from A to B by shutting down replenishing um, uh, existing proteins, which likely will be highly uh, ubiquitinated and pulled out very fast, and we upregulate novel transcription factors. In the past, we looked only in the upregulation. And I think the experiment I just described, where we used a very potent transcription factor and misexpressed it, we had no effect, shows us that this was a very simplistic, this experiment we thought about 2003, at that point in time, we were not yet at a level of sophistication of interaction as we have it right now. MicroRNA just came in. The anti-histone modifiers to shut down activation of genes immediately in earlier stages were beginning to appear, but the regulation was completely unclear. Now, six years later, we're looking at it and of course, it's trivial. All of this has already happened. You cannot achieve anything with it, right? Some of your work ties into hearing loss in stem cells. Yeah, I thought you may want to talk about that a little bit. So, what we did is we sorted this entire problem of hearing loss into three different categories. A simple category is your hair cells, for whatever reason, are disappearing, either because, like a colleague I met, he had a, 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 a serious infection. The only drug that could help him was a drug that has as a side effect complete destruction of hair cells. So his choice was death or death. He would choose death. He was also an active musician. And then all of a sudden he was deaf. But he was alive. It's a good part. So three years later, he got a cochlear implant. He got his hearing back, so to speak. But what he then experienced was he had to relearn every single time. As a musician, when he played this piano, as it was used to, it sounded completely out of tune. Because your cochlear implant has only about six, if you are lucky, stimulation points. That is not the same thing as having several thousand stimulation points. So your frequency characteristics is abysmal. Unfortunately, by the very nature of a cochlear implant and the uh, uh, expansion of your electric stimulation, you can't make that much denser. Okay. So, with this experience in the background, we looked at what can be done for cochlear implant patients to improve the uh, resolution and the number of stimulation points for a cochlear implant. As you lose your hair cells, you're also losing your neurotrophic support for your neurons. So your neurons begin to die. It's a slow process that can last over several 10 or uh, even uh, 20 or more years. We don't know exactly how long it lasts in a human being because there are not many volunteers, as you can imagine. Right? So, but if you compare that with a mouse, you know that after the hair cells are dying, you have about half a year or so, and then your neurons really get into a, a, a lost phase. We know that the cochlear implant seems to stabilize, and the, the real point is seems to stabilize that neuron loss. Again, the data point is just not good enough to be absolutely sure about it. But here's what we are doing right now. We take 
children younger than seven years of age that are born congenitally deaf to stick in cochlear implants. Why are we doing it so young? If you do it with a deaf-born child up at the age seven, we cannot regain the benefit of your cochlear implant because the critical phase in your brain to understand spoken words is done. You are you are closed. It's just noise. Your brain cannot cannot deal with it anymore. Okay, but then you have a patient potentially lives for seventy years, and they have no guarantee attached that you really live so long with respect to your neurons. So what we are trying to do is generate alternative means to make all these neurons viable for the entire time. One of it is generating a transgenic misexpressor of neurotrophic support that then makes those neurons viable all the time without any hair cells. The second one is converting some of the neurons into hair cells, which then do what hair cells do, generate neurotrophic support, which is molecularly known. We showed this about 10 years ago. If you take out two critical molecules, BDNF and neurotrophin 3, all innovation to the is gone. You can literally express those back in those hair cells that would make the neurons happy. So you convert some of the neurons into hair cells and they rescue all the rest of the neurons. As long as the hair cells live, the neurons will be happy. Right? So that's one avenue. Second avenue is going back and regenerating hearing by regenerating the hair cells. There are two directions people are taking. One is uh, a gene therapy approach where we recapitulate in the dish uh, the uh, regeneration of hair cells out of naive uh, stem cells or even IPS cells. So essentially if you think about it, you can take out skin, put it in the dish, treat it with a few genes and turn them into precursors of, for the neurosensory part of the ear. But then comes the critical part. The micromechanics of the cochlea is such that you need to have your hair cells in an absolute stereotype position, otherwise you will not hear sound. If you are outside of the cochlea and not underneath the sectorial membrane, you can blast the ear with as much sound as you want, they will not be excited. And here's my the question I always ask my friends who go along that line. How will you lift up the tectoidal membrane, stick your regenerated hair cell underneath and close it back again? Technically quite quite difficult, right? So the alternative to that part is we're trying to get into isolating specific factors that are specifying precisely where the hair cells will differentiate. If we have such a factor, we might be able to isolate that promoter region and then use that promoter region to drive the cascade of events as we now know is necessary to go from an undifferentiated flat epithelium into a fully differentiated SL bearing epithelium, literally recapitulating the entire whole nine knot. How, how do you recapitulate uh, the, the tonotopic map? The tonotopic map is a side effect of, of place. So if you look at it, your basal term is uh, as, as it's organized, will always receive the high frequency end. Your apical part will always receive the low frequency end. So the only thing you need to worry about is getting at every place a hassle. The map is already there, but you have nobody to, to listen to it. So we need to get the listener back in. So do you think, if, so if, if the spiral ganglion cells then will hook up with those cells, mm -hmm. do they have to hook up with them in the right order, so the spiral ganglion cell that was going to be hooked to the base will be hooked to the base, and the apex to apex, or can that be sort of sorted down, out downstream? Spiral ganglion cells are the first approximation uh, uh, pretty easy to deal with because they always will go with the nearest neurotrophic support. So we, what we did is we made a transgenic mouse where we knocked in one neurotrophin that is expressed only in the vestibular end organs, into uh, um, uh, into the neurotrophin that is expressed in the basal turn of the cochlea. Okay, so the basal turn of the cochlea gets fibers going to the posterior canal that are passing right over it. And the idea behind was, okay, this is only driven by BDNF, one of the neurotrophins, and the basal turn of the cochlea is initially at the same time these fibers are growing out exclusively on the second neurotrophin, NTF3. If we now misexpress under NDF3 locus BDNF, we should reroute the fibers from the vestibular part into the ear. 
And that's exactly what we found. So the heterocycle, we get some fibers in the homozygotic, all the fibers go to the cochlea. So we get the vestibular fibers innervating the cochlea. So I think we can say from there, these are the ones that can guide the fibers where we want them. So now we can take that part and expand it and say, yeah, we know already what is attractive. So we now put what is attractive for the fibers someplace and they go to it. So here's the, the, the problem where some people don't think it to the end. Let me explain that. Some of my friends uh, who work in cochlear implants took that as, oh, right, we know exactly how we can get a denser uh, fibers going to the uh, cochlear implants, right? We make 20 stimulation points, we put in BDNF, and this will come out only at the stimulating electrodes, and all the fibers will go to that part. Absolutely true, they will do this. But here's the bad part of it. Your cochlear implant is as a man-made implant, not working 60 years. You need to take it out and put in a new one. At point in time, you rip off all the fibers. So you may get a certain benefit, but as you come in with a new cochlear implant, you would need to rewire the entire connectivity back again. So this is superficially a very attractive strategy, but I don't think that's the way we want to go. The way we need to go is we need to get the fiber into close proximity but not right at the cochlear implant. So how we do that part? Well, we can reroute the fibers by expressing the neurotrophins in the area around the cochlear implant, but the fibers go pretty much around the area, but not onto the cochlear implant. So, and going back to your question, yes, as soon as there is a hair cell there, the fibers will be attracted. And it will be the right fiber. It will be the most closest fibers because you are defining it simply by your diffusion. And your diffusion is going 60, 80 to 100 micrometers. That's the same principle that, that gets it connected right the first time. Yes. And so you're just using that. Yes. So that means that the hair cells must be placed in the right order at the right time. Not necessarily. So in order to get the nearest one to... to attract the correct fiber, this spiral ganglion fiber, correct. you have to put that one there first to make sure that one goes in there first, and then place the next one in order. Yes, but, you, but you have to keep in mind, we are not talking about how it is in development. In development, yeah. you have a race, a race of differentiation wave going down and fiber outgrowth wave going down. Now we are taking out all the hair cells. The fibers, at least those survive, are still staying out there. Okay. All of them like fingers. So if you now start and regenerate this one first, but all the fibers say, oh, there's food over there, and they all turn there, you can't do it. You would need to go in and upregulate them all at once. So you, okay, so you're saying you, you have to do this before those, those neurons actually die then? Yes. You can't regenerate them back? Well, once, no. That's a different story. Yeah, that's the third avenue that is also followed by a number of microleaks. So what you can do is you can take a bone marrow, for example, convert it into um, a stem cells, Kill all the sensory neurons. There's a drug out there, Aubain. If you put this in, you kill 99% of your sensory neurons. And then you can reseed your empty space with your uh, um, neuronally differentiating uh, precursors. And they differentiate those neurons and they send a fiber up to the hair cells because the hair cells are sitting there and say, come on, come to me. And so they grow right there. These people haven't yet analyzed what is happening on the other end. Because as I said before, you need to have a proper connection. So where I'm sitting, well, we may get now a connection on both ends, but whether this is tonotopically organized. That is, the peripheral tonotopy is not the part I'm concerned. Yeah. The central tonotopy, I would be really concerned about. Because that comes all about by a temporal unfolding. So think about your cochlear nucleus is literally rolling out of the brain. The first one differentiates is the dorsalmost part, which receives the basal fibers. As the next level of fibers are coming in, they go more and more ventrally where no fibers are in. So you have a temporal uh, development translated into spatial segregation. That part you can't mimic. So once your fibers are regenerating to the cochlear nuclei, I'm afraid they will go in randomly, like what I showed with the neural D fibers. Mm -hmm. They go all over the place. And then, of course, you will have peripherally, beautifully organized tonotopic system but it will not be tonotopically represented centrally. So you need a two-strategy approach. You need an implant and somehow get into the brainstem and create some kind of 
No, no. Keep your own spinal ganglion if you can. Yes, there's the answer. First order of principle, keeping your spinal ganglion because they are properly corrected. That is the first order of principle, and all the rest is adding on top because we can rescue them, we can keep you happy with the cochlear implant, and if we solve all the rest with the hair cells, they're already there. And the rest is not an issue. But that's, that's really the strategy. That's why I'm focusing the strong on the neurons. So you have to get there soon, then, soon after becoming deaf. Take a long time. To do First order of principle: keep them alive. Yeah. yeah. And if you can keep them alive for fifty years, you still have time to sort out the rest without yeah. making a lot of mess. Yeah. Because the worst case scenario really is you try to. Uh, that's one of the pieces you're working on. There's one thing that is really quite unique for the ear. The ear does not develop cancer. Period. The only part cancer we have in the ear is the schwannoma of the eighth nerve. That is not part of the ear, that is neurocrest-derived Schwann cells. So one of the things we are facing in the ear is it does not reinitiate proliferation after a certain point in time. We went so far that we did a conditional deletion of retinoblastoma in the ear. Retinoblastoma is in the hair cells. So the idea was, well, if we do it early enough, we make more hair cells. We got more hair cells, but they all die. Because if you do a retinoblastoma deletion, you of course have no checkpoint anymore, you build up all kinds of uh, uh, problems in your DNA, and eventually the guys die. If you force differentiated hair cell through delayed uh, deletion of retinoblastoma and the proliferation, one proliferation, all dead. Okay? So the ear in itself, after a certain point in time, is completely refractory to additional proliferation. We do not understand why. If we understand that part, we get the flip side of it. We can help people who get cancer. Because whatever happens in the ear would be very important for cancer. For us to be looking at the cancer world and see all the genes that are mutated to cause this growth, and none of that happens in the ear. So that's true across phyla, that you don't see any regeneration in any sort of auditory apparatus at all? It's one of those things where you say, evolution is not kind to us. So if you go to a bird, birds have continuous replacement of vestibular hair cells, but their organ of corti equivalent called the basilla papilla is doing the same thing like the ear. It forms all the hair cells up to a certain point, and that is it. However, you now go in and wipe out all the hair cells. And the bird says, oops! Back to proliferation mode, and all hair cells are back. Six weeks later, you have normal ear. If you would be, if you would have a bird ear, you wouldn't have a, 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 any funding for cochlear implants or anything like that because they would be irrelevant. You kill the hair cells, you punish them right away. It doesn't work in the nervous system. It has a complete block for proliferation. We do not know what the block is, so consequently, we can't overcome it. So, many of my colleagues are working on hair cell regeneration in chicken with the hope to translate the chicken part into the mammalian part. I'm always sitting there and say, yes guys, but you are looking where the light is and you lost your key where it's dark. You don't know what can be translated here because we don't know the block in the first place. We need to understand that block first. We need to remove it and then see how much of what they've learned in the chicken can actually be translated into the mammalian ear. So there's no way out. We need to be able, ultimately, to restart, jumpstart the proliferation in the mammalian system. And everyone understands it. So the consequence of when you lose your hair cell is the supporting cells also differentiate, de-differentiate, and eventually you end up with something that is called a flat epithelium. It's exactly like it starts, a flat epithelium. And that's exactly what we have now in the eight of one null mice. So we are generating these mice with the idea to, in tissue culture, try to boost with everything we have, reformation of hair cells first. If we can't do it in those guys, we should be able to do it in anything. But this is where I'm sitting a late stage in the entire process. First order of principle is anything possible to maintain your neurons. So you're not ending up with a, a misconnected spiral ganglion cell. But you have a peripheral proper connection, and you hear a high frequency, and centrally it is in the low frequency end. Uh -huh. 
and anyone else is in between. Your, your, your cortex would really go into overtime, sort this out. It might be possible, or the learning ability is incredible, but you certainly will be, uh, before you're able to sort it out at a time where you say, oops, that really sounds strange. You know, uh, patterning the embryo, the brain or the limbs or whatever, are guided by anterior, posterior molecules and dorsal ventral, whether they're transcription factors or graded molecules. So, um, as far as uh, since you're also a developmental biologist, a chicken and egg story. Really, the the egg developed before the chicken in this case, right? That, that, you know, the egg that, always had to be before there was a chicken. Right? No doubt about it. So it was just a dinosaur. It was a red herring. It was a red herring. So, no, it really is a question. Like, you know, how does you know, with, with an evolutionary perspective, how come you know the, the, the embryo knows how to become an anterior posterior? I mean, I can tell you which. Molecules do it, but why did it do that? And when it comes out hatched or whatever, it already is equipped with the challenges of the Cartesian coordinates of the environment. So, part of the question would be: He will like that. He can look at this, uh, at the model modeling of Hans Meinert uh, about a diffusible factor and how they can define onto posterior dorsal ventral patterning, and his modeling of Pure conceptual mathematical models of how diffusible factors would act at different size and different organized embryos. Well, he came up with the, uh, about 10 years ago with the clear uh, conclusion that the, the difference between the uh, protostomia and the deuterostomia can be easily reconciled by bringing them back as independent derived forms out of a single cell primitive organism. I think the work done by Chris Lowe where he showed that in the uh, acorn worms, you do have a very different, uh, you have the paddling genes, your homeobox genes already expressed, other genes that are part like OTX, that is part of our forebrain, right? Without OTX1, you don't get a good forebrain development. All those patterning genes are fully expressed in the acorn worm. In a nervous system that is only in the most caudal part, Invaginated and forming a nerve, a, a central nervous system. The peripheral part, the entire proboscis doesn't have any central nervous system. It is a PNS. So now you go back to why I asked the question: How you get nerve net getting internalized? Because your patterning was already there in the nerve net. Because your patterning is embedded for the nervous system in your global patterning. Once you roll it in, you take your global patterning with you. You already have anterior posterior. You have dorsal ventral. Definitely. Because you have your uh, notochord right underneath, you know exactly what is up and what is down. You know exactly what is AP, you know exactly what is left and right. That is all already given at the time you enroll. You have basically taken your salami and cut it already in this labs. And you use your Hox genes up to a certain point and then you shift to other genes. That leaves you with this uh, longitudinal definition. And your longitudinal definition can be found with your BHLH genes, for example. Where you have your long strips or your wind genes where you have your long extended lines that are going all the way through. But even with that, the one part, I'm, and I can send you that paper, where we looked at a simple issue, the formation of something that is so awfully boring, like the midbrain, hindbrain boundary. That's the most best-known example we have in molecular cascade, how it's regulated. And it's so awfully complex that it's not funny anymore. And there are even not all the genes known for that part. And now you look... In evolution of the midbrain hindbrain boundary genes, which we all know have to be wind one, have to be FGFA, you have to have your OTX2, and all the other factors that are bumping against each other to define that. You find those genes in some, but not in other critters, where the complete genome is known. So that means before there was a midbrain hindbrain, and all these guys were orchestrated to be expressed in a specific pattern right around this area, they were floating around and doing different things. To never reorganize. That brings you back to the basic problem of gene regulation. And our level of ignorance is way outweighing here our level of understanding. Yes, only three things can be regulated time, place, and intensity. But boy, is that overly complex. If you look at any paper where people were actually going in and dissect the entire promoter region, Cutting it into small slabs, taking each one of these little DNA elements, stick it in into a reporter, 
and make a transgenic animal and see where they are popping up. It has been done for the SOX2 promoter region. They isolated a bunch of little fragments, snippets of only 300 or so nucleotide length, that isolated can drive gene expression selectively in the ear for at least a brief time. So in other words, these little snippets that you don't even recognize in any search is information in that is critical for the question you are asking. The question namely, how can a gene that is used at multiple levels, both spatially and temporally, nevertheless be restrictively expressed when it is expressed in only a given organ or even in a subcompartment within a given organ? It's all in that promoter region and that part we haven't yet understood. So your topology is still there, but it's still with a question mark, hidden in the promoter region where I'm, where I'm sitting. Just, we just have a few minutes left, and I just wanted to close with this idea of molecular homology. And, and throughout evolution, we, we talk about structural homology and conservation of structure across species. How does that map onto molecular homology? It doesn't seem to always line up, does it? This idea that a few genes throughout evolution, you have like three or four genes determining structural uh, elements. I mean, does it, does it always seem to work out that way? But there are two parts to it. One is nature has mushroomed certain genes into large families. So what used to be one single gene, for example, in, in the Drosophila, uh, the entire atonal neuro-D BHLH gene is only two genes. You have many, many more of those guys. So, of course, those guys are now considered paralogs, and each one has acquired a slightly different function. If you have paralogs, then you have to ask yourself, okay, the homolog even if it has a certain high level of sequence similarity, is it really a functional identity? Or how many of those functions that are there only associated with the single gene are now carried by gene paralogue number two, paralogue number three, paralogue number four? It's one of the problems you have. Deeply underlying to that part is what is our mechanism to equate sequence similarity, i.e. homology, with structural homology? Because there's, we are talking about two different levels. The structural homology is related to the gene homology through the entire developmental pathway. So if you say gene X is homologous, therefore the outcome is homologous, you imply that the entire pathway of development is homologous. And then I would say, that's fantasy right now. So now you go two steps back and say, if you really want to equate things across phyla, you need to have something that is absolutely undoubted homologous in terms of sequence similarity. So here's the project we are working on right now. Neurons are neurons because they are differentiated as neurons, but they are not necessarily associated in the central nervous system. You may have a nerve net. At that point in time, you have an animal like a, a hydrosome animal, where you have single individual neurons floating throughout the entire ectoderm. They are not aggregated other than the condensation around the mouth. They certainly don't form what is called a CNS. But they are neurons. What we try to see is first order of business, the condensation of the network system into the CNS. That is a very early step that is very different between flies and us. So there are simplistic ways of equating it. One is this upside-down uh, motion. So the fly central nervous system is ventral, the vertebrate nervous system is dorsal. So the idea is just flipping things upside down. It works up to a certain point uh, if you don't know enough about all the rest of the genes that are expressed. But if you really look at it, you have to see the mechanism that specify dorsal and ventral already different between those two organisms. The way the nervous system forms in an insect, the way the nervous system is organizing in the vertebrate, is molecular at the beginning very different. For example, insects have absolutely no fibroblast growth factors in their, in their early development. You can knock out all the single FGF they have, and nothing affects really the nervous system development. Take out FGFs in the vertebrate system, there is no CNS. So there we have right at the beginning a clear difference in multiple ways. And what we really need to understand is equating nerves across phyla. For this, we have one single microRNA, 124. 
it is 100% conserved, the same 22 nucleotides, no change whatsoever. One of the few genes that simply doesn't change, it's always exclusively expressed in neuron. As a consequence, you can say wherever 124 is expressed, you are talking about a neuron. So now we can see how the entire nervous system is really distributedly organized in animals where we have absolutely no clue what genes we want to look for to identify the neurons. We can then see how during development in those critters where it becomes stepwise condensed, uh, how it really works. Now, if you are at that point in time, you also need to understand that in the past, one of the problems we had in our cladistic analysis of how animals are related to each other, the deuterostomes were all the way out by themselves. We had really no precursor of it, and that has changed in the last few years. There was a critter out there that looks like a flatworm, and has been grouped with a flatworm, that is now molecularly being identified as being our closest relative. Looks like a flatworm is called Xenotobella, is about this big, comes, in the, it comes from the Baltic Sea and has a complete diffuse nervous system. No aggregation whatsoever. Just epidermal nervous system. It doesn't have an anus and a mouth as we know it. It has only a single opening, like typical turbularians do. So all the ideas we have been cooking around with prolostomy and deuterostomy are very difficult to reconcile with this new uh, idea. Because what it basically means is, well, before there were protostomia and deuterostomia, there was a clade that had only a single mouth. It was already a triploblast. And that triploblast was the basis for two different phyla. And within the deuterostome phyla, we still have a single mouth ancestor living with us. And then we choose to go the way of the deuterostomes, including folding in the peripheral nervous system into the central nervous system. 124 might be the catch. Logically, I'm not looking at all those critters with 124 as a search card. It's a whole new definition of lineage. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. I feel like I have to hit my zoology texts now. You definitely have to. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks for being with us. It's been great. Uh, this was Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Mm -hmm.